the children come Don't dare drive them away And then the kingdom comes Hear the holy foolish things they say The springtime of their life decides The adults they'll become So let the children come Please let the children Welcome to Children's Bible Journey with stories and songs just for kids. We have a dramatized Bible story coming up, but let's get today's program started by singing some praises to our awesome God. I have two children of my own, and of all the jobs I have, the most important one is to teach them what my father taught me, to trust and obey the Lord. And if you learn to follow Jesus now, while you're still young, you'll never lose your way even when you're older. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way he should go. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, when he is old, he will not Depart from it. Train up a child in the way he should go. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, when he is old, he will not depart from it. singing in a few minutes. Now let's get back to our continuing Bible story from the Bible in Living Sound. After the marriage feast at Cana, Jesus, his mother, half-brothers, and his disciples went down to Capernaum. And Jesus remained there not many days, for the Passover at Jerusalem drew nigh. Jesus joined one of the large caravans that was making its way to Jerusalem. 
Yeah, how do you do, stranger? Large caravan. Everyone talking about the sensational ministry of John the Baptist and his announcement that the Messiah is already here among us. <laughs> well, personally, I believe that when the Messiah does come, he will come with glory and honor and that he will make of Israel the great nation she used to be. We've been under the tyranny of Rome long enough. It's time the Messiah came and delivered us. What do you think? The hope of national greatness will end in disappointment. Disappointment? Do you mean that the Messiah will not deliver us from Rome? Such a hope is founded on a misinterpretation of Scripture. The prophets clearly expound... Misinterpretation of Scripture? Do you know what you're saying? You're implying that the priests and teachers in Jerusalem are liars, or at least wrong in their interpretation of Scriptures. They tell us that the Messiah will free us of Rome. Beautiful sight, don't you think? Well, what is? <laughs> Come and see. Uh, I'll admit it's a confused sight, but beautiful. Oh, I don't see anything beautiful. Well, I mean the activity down there. Beautiful? Mm -hmm. I think it's ugly. <laughs> All sorts of people mingling together, the merchants and money changers, not an honest one among them. Oh, but my dear father-in-law, are you forgetting that all this enriches us? Well, the dealers charge exorbitant prices for the animals. The people have to buy them, or at least that is what we have taught them. That unless they offer a burnt offering, the, the blessing of God will not rest on them, their children, or their lands. Uh, you don't sound like a priest, Annas, my father-in-law. Oh, I approve of what goes on, I suppose. It's just that sometimes I think the scene down there resembles a cattle market more than the sacred temple of God. I'm like the rest of you. The love of money has rooted itself deep within me and overrules any scruples I may have had. <laughs> uh, you're forgetting the good we do. Uh, take a good look. As you say, all sorts of people are down there. The blind, the lame, the deaf, those suffering from want and distress. Some are brought in beds too ill to come by themselves. Some are too poor to buy the humblest offerings. Too poor even to buy food for themselves. Uh, yes, Caiaphas, I know all this. I also know we priests boast of our piety. We claim to be guardians of the people. But we are without sympathy or compassion, even for the poor, the sick, and the dying. Their pleas and suffering awaken no pity in any of our hearts. Uh, should it? You are the high priest. I'll let you answer your question. We are the leaders of Israel. Our word is law. Our interpretation of scripture is holy. We must rule with a firm hand, giving quarter to no man or no faction. Well, from your point of view, I can understand why you think the scene down there is beautiful. Uh, and from your point of view, Annas? Well, I suppose I agree with you, Caiaphas, but... It's all the same to you. I don't think I'll watch it. You may, though. I shall. <laughs> I couldn't get anything. Not even one skinny dove. But we've got to have something to offer as a burnt offering. We shall be cursed for the rest of the year. How can we be cursed more than we already are? 
We don't even have enough to buy food. Yet we must buy a sacrifice. What kind of God do we serve anyway? A pitiless, hard-hearted God? I think we serve the priests and rulers of Israel, not God. But without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding... There he is. There, there who is? Jesus of Nazareth. He helped us. Gave us food on the journey here, remember? Oh, Oh, yes, that is he. He's coming down the temple steps. Maybe he will help us secure... He has stopped on the steps. He's looking around. He's looking at the lame and the blind. He's looking at us. He smiles. I feel better, as if some great load had been lifted from my shoulders. Look, others are smiling, too. Others in pain and distress, blind and lame... But not the merchants and money changers. They cringe from his searching eyes. The attention of everyone is attracted to Jesus. All activity has stopped. I think Jesus sees through the unfairness and evil among the merchants and money changers. Some are trying to to hide from Jesus, as if their evil deeds were written upon their faces to be scanned by his searching eyes. Take these things hence. Make not my father's house and house of merchandise. Jesus is a friend of the poor and distressed. They say he is the Messiah. Yes, but I I never believed it until now. He's slowly descending the steps into the temple court. Depart from the precincts of this temple, ye doers of iniquity. them scramble out of his way. None of them question his authority. They're all rushing from the place with but one thought, to escape the holy wrath of Jesus. Well, Caiaphas, high priest and son-in-law, do you think that scene was beautiful? Well, what right had he to drive our men from the temple? Well, he spoke with authority. That, my dear son-in-law, is all the right he needed. Why didn't he drive everyone from the court? Why just our men? Our money changers and merchants feared him. The others didn't. Ah. Fact is, they look upon that man as their savior. And they are right. Ah, Annas, did you see that? Well, I most certainly did. That lame man (laughs) threw away his crutches and and is walking. And that blind man, he can see. Impossible. But true. Furthermore, as your own eyes attest, that man is healing everyone of whatever disease he has. He must be the Messiah, wouldn't you say? No. Well, I'm your father-in-law. You can confide in me. I I won't tell anyone. I confess to nothing. Well, the man is different. He has power we ourselves don't have. I'll admit to nothing. Nothing! After a time, those who had fled the temple in terror slowly drifted back. But what a change had taken place. The poor and the needy, the discouraged and distressed are gathered about Jesus. Fear not, I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. For this cause came I into the world. The returning money changers and merchants saw the lame leap for joy, the blind beholding the face of their Redeemer, the hearts of the sufferers made glad, 
the dumb opening their lips in praise. Jesus of Nazareth, blessed be thy name. He is the Messiah. He cleansed me of my All disease. All those who witnessed this wonderful scene, a manifestation of the power and love of Jesus, could not help but admit, if only to themselves, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God and the Savior of mankind. We'll continue the Bible story tomorrow, and if you would like to have these stories to listen to at home, you can call the Bible in Living Sound at 1-800-634-0234. That's 1-800-634-0234. Mom, I'm home. Hi, sweetie. How was your day? I survived. Gotta be in English. And I learned something about prayer. What? That prayer makes you feel less lonely. How's it do that? Well, I have a friend, Ellie. She doesn't believe in God. Her dad says God is a made-up being that people pray to when they're scared. Wow. And she says that anyone who prays to God is just being foolish. So what's that got to do with loneliness? I asked her what she does when she's scared or having a problem. She said, I take care of it myself. I'm the boss of me. I can do whatever I want. Sounds like a determined young lady. Yeah, but who wants to be the boss of themselves? I mean, I make mistakes. I'm human. Would I really want to follow me through life, depending on me to figure everything out? I know me. I'm dumb. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. I think you're a pretty smart kid. Well, let's just say I'm smart enough not to put me in charge of me. I want someone who knows more than I do, helping me make decisions and showing me what to do. Trusting in me for everything would be kind of lonely. Now I get it. A life without God would be a lonely life, right? Yeah. Now, when I have a problem, I can pray to my friend Jesus. Get it? Got it. So if someone feels lonely, they can pray and God will be right there, ready to be a friend. Then, hello friend, goodbye loneliness. Jesus wants to be our friend. He has placed in our hearts a desire to share our deepest secrets and brightest hopes with Him. This program was brought to you by the Children's Ministries Department of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. Peter was a fisherman. Peter was a fisherman. And he made a little wish to catch a lot of fish. But instead he ended up with an empty dish. So Jesus said, Peter, try the other side. Jesus said, Peter, try the other side. So he threw his nets into the rolling sea. And he said, look at all the fish that came to me. Life will never end, your life will never end, your life will never end.
boys and girls. This is Ms. Kathy. I'm so happy you've joined me today for another story just for you. The Night the Stars Fell by Josephine Edwards. When my grandmother was just 10 years old, her father wanted to go out west. His farm was in the hills of North Carolina, and the land was so hilly it was discouraging to try to get a good crop. People told him of the broad, flat, fertile lands in a place called Indiana, where the soil was rich and productive. So the family sold out and got ready to go. Callens, that's my grandma's dad, had written ahead and purchased a homestead of 160 acres bordering a creek, the water of which never failed. With high hopes, the family packed up their beloved possessions in two huge covered wagons. No one dreamed of taking such journeys in a hurry in those days, for the road was bad and some of it had to be made as one went along. They always stopped and camped at nightfall, as near to a stream as they could. While everyone did their appointed tasks, Janie, grandma's mother, prepared food that tasted like ambrosia after a bone-jarring day in the lurching covered wagons. When the memorable night of November 13, 1833 rolled around, the travelers were high in the Cumberlands, camped by the side of a swift, clear mountain stream. They had decided to camp here for a few days and wash clothes and gather in some food. There was a small town nearby, and the woods were near enough for Callens and his son Valen to get some deer and perhaps a pheasant and a wild turkey or two. Janie wanted to bake some bread ahead, too. Pa and Ma and little Ambie and baby Anne slept in the first wagon. Margaret, my grandmother, slept alone in the second, while big brother Valen, rolled in a blanket, slept underneath the wagon right on the ground. They all went to bed early that night of November 13, 1833. Margaret and her mother had done a big washing in the stream with the good homemade soap Janie had brought with her from the old home. Even as they went to bed, Margaret could see the clothes draped over the bushes, white patches in the darkness under the trees. Pa and Valen had been busy, too. They had killed a deer, skinned it, and cut a lot of the meat in strips to dry so it would last them for a long time. Smoked, dried deer meat was called jerked venison. Everyone was tired, so the beds, such as they were, felt very good on that night so long ago. Margaret stretched out her young legs wearily between her mother's homespun sheets and drew the handwoven cover lid over her. She had gone to sleep with the twilight barely gone and the western sky still flushed with the red of sunset. She was awakened by Pa shaking her gently, yet urgently. She could hardly see his silhouette, it was so dark. Margaret, Margaret, he called softly, almost in the tone he would use if someone were dead. The girl sat up, her heart plunging in alarm. Was it Indians? Snakes? Bears? Wildcats? Mountain lions? What is it, Pa? she cried. Then she noticed leaping lights dancing crazily over the wagon canvas. Is the forest afire? Will we be burned? I hope not, Peggy, her father said gently, using her baby pet name. I hope not, but it might be the last night we will ever see in this world. By this time, his face was lit up by the queer glow. Without asking any more questions, Margaret slipped out of the high wagon in her clean white night shift, washed and dried in the sun only that day. She remembered years later that the grass was very wet and the frogs were shrilling loudly down in the little pond near the stream. She slipped her small, cold hand into her father's big, warm one, and together they went to the open place in the woods where the rest were gazing upward. Even baby Anne was awake in mother's arms, rubbing her small button of a nose sleepily. She was not alarmed in the least. Hadn't these two big people taken her through every fear she had ever known? But Ambie, who was seven, had his face hid in mother's white nightgown and was sobbing. 
Margaret looked up as soon as she came out from under the thick, laced branches of the trees. A cold hand of fear clutched at her heart. The whole sky was ablaze with darting lights. It was as if the whole firmament was on the move. Every star seemed to be leaping, leaving a fiery trail right toward the place in the Cumberlands where she was standing. The sky was a vast riddle of blazing streaks, like a million flashes of lightning ripping through the sky at the same time. Margaret began to tremble, not only from fear, but from the cold. Fog was as thick as cotton balls down in the valley, and the chill penetrated even to the highlands, but no one thought of creeping back into the warm feather beds in the wagons, though little Anne did go to sleep, and Janie put her into the bed in the forward wagon. Margaret never forgot that night, even though she lived well into the next century, and died almost seventy-one years after the night she saw the stars fall. After a while, when the children began to get a little used to the awful sight, Amby started to walk around and look up a little. He had kept his head under his mother's shawl, sobbing with fear for a long time. Then father started to talk to them. Children, he said, do you remember that little pamphlet that someone brought to our house back there before we left North Carolina? Yes, Pa, Valentine answered slowly. You read it out loud. It was by a man who believed the Bible says that the Lord will come the second time in our day. Yes, as I remember, his name was William Miller, Callens answered slowly. I remember we didn't put too much faith in it at the time, Janie said defensively. No, we didn't, Janie. That's true, her husband answered. You know, I have always avoided fanaticism, but this falling of the stars is something else again. I know it is set down someplace in the Bible. I remember either reading it or hearing it read. If the world is still standing in the morning, I will look it up. Nothing more spectacular happened. Amby got tired and crept off to bed. Finally, Margaret went to the wagon just to lie down, but in spite of her resolutions, she dropped off to sleep. When she awoke late the next morning, breakfast was over and everyone was almost ready to move on. The oxen had been yoked and Janie had packed everything. Oh, Ma, cried Margaret, why didn't you call me? You looked too tired, my little one, answered Janie, understandingly, but I saved you some porridge and kept it hot in the embers. With that, Janie brought the girl a thick homespun cloth wet in the stream to wash her face and hands. Then the bowl of porridge, feathery gray from fluffy wood ashes, was hastily wiped off and put into Margaret's hands. It was made of home-ground meal and sweetened with wild honey from the bee tree Valen had discovered the week before. Clotted cream from old clover, the yellow Jersey cow, was heaped on top. Before Margaret had finished her breakfast, the wagons were on their way westward, swaying and bumping and jogging. Everywhere they passed, there were stories of the terrors of the night before. The African Americans in a nearby plantation had had a prayer meeting that lasted all night. They weren't worth a cent in the cotton fields the next day, so people said. But the white folks didn't have too much to say, for they had been excited, too, at the weird thing that had happened to the world. A woman in one village had gone quite crazy and had wandered all night in her nightgown. She had been found the next morning distraught and babbling. Margaret listened to everything that was said and to her father telling people in the trading post about William Miller and of how he had heard he was preaching about the soon coming of the Lord up in York State. At noontime, because they were stopped near the village, Janie cooked up a stew. One of the men in the village had brought in a deer, and one of the women brought a big piece to Janie with some cornbread and some Indian pudding. When they gathered around to eat, they were all talking about the falling of the stars and what this one and that one in the village had said. That reminds me of tales I've heard my Grandma Marie tell about what happened when my own mother was just a babe in the cradle, Janie said. 
She had lifted the lid of the Dutch oven and was cutting the steaming cornbread for everyone to sop in their venison stew. A bowl of churn-fresh butter was set on some burdock leaves, and everybody spread it richly on every slice of bread till it melted and ran down into their bowls of stew. "'What happened when your mother was a baby?' asked Margaret curiously, accepting her own hot wedge of buttered bread from her mother's busy hands. Janie straightened her back and looked off toward the distant hills a long time before she answered. "'Grandma said that Grandpa had been off in the army for a long time. "'Then he got a wound in his leg from the Battle of King's Mountain. "'Uncle Jim helped him get his plantin' done, for he never did get real pert again. "'The wound in his leg never healed up right till he was old.' It gave him trouble till he died, especially in damp, cold weather. Grandma said it was in May. The crops were in, and they were plowing like mad. The weeds had gotten ahead of them, but that morning Grandma said she put her breakfast on early. Buckwheat cakes, she said, she baked, and fried eggs and sorghum molasses. I've got her long-legged griddle yet, and you've all eaten many a buckwheat cake baked on Grandma Ray's griddle. They had just got set down when Grandpa said, Go to the door, Lessie, and see if a storm is brewing. It's getting pretty dark, like the sun's clouding over. Grandma said she went to the door and looked out. It looked for all the world like it was coming night instead of being early in the morning. Ah, yes, I remember, her husband contributed then. That was the famous dark day. My father was a drummer boy in the army when it happened. He said that some of the soldiers almost went crazy with fear. They thought it was the day of judgment for sure. That is what my grandma told me, Janie answered. She said the slaves hung around the houses weeping and mourning like children all day, and the white folks weren't much behind them in being afraid. Was it dark all day, Ma? Balin asked curiously. Yes, sir, it was, Janie answered. Grandma told me she lit candles, and no one went to the fields. The cows went to the shed, and the chickens flew up in the orchard trees and went to roost. She said that night was so dark you couldn't see your hand in front of your face, and the moon looked like a big pumpkin, glowing like phosphorus in the dark. That's written up in the Bible, too, same as the falling of the stars, Callens told them. Then he got up and got his ponderous Bible off the wagon seat where he had been reading. He began to read to them as they sat on the green grass around the crook. He began to read to them as they sat on the green grass around the cook pot on that day more than 110 years ago. He had looked it all up as soon as it got daybreak on that morning. It had not been hard, for Callens had read the Bible through several times. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Matthew twenty four twenty nine. Callens looked up from the big brass-bound leather book solemnly. Three of these signs have come to pass in our day, he said. William Miller must have some truth at least, and I, for one, am going to look into it. What does it mean about the powers of heaven, Pa? asked Valen curiously. That I do not know, my son, answered Callens. It has not taken place yet, but I believe it will happen, and we will know if it does in our day. We must serve God and be ready. Callens, Janie, Margaret, Yes, even Valentine and Amby and Baby Anne all are dead. Their graves are sunken, and the stones are standing crooked and mossy, as if Satan would say, See, all things continue as they did since the fathers fell asleep. But don't let him fool you. Margaret got married after she reached Indiana, and her tenth child was Elizabeth, my own dear mother. Sixty-nine years after the falling of the stars, my mother heard and accepted the third angel's message. She, too, is sleeping, awaiting the trump of God and the awakening call of the Lord. 
She knew very well that the Lord will come at the appointed time. And so did my grandparents and my greats and great-greats and great-great-greats. Clear back to the dark day, May 19, 1780. The story you have heard today is from Guide's Greatest Stories, written by various authors and compiled by Randy Fischel, and used with permission from the Pacific Press Publishing Association. If you're interested in any other books published by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, please visit AdventistBookCenter.com or call 1-800-765-6955. is a production of the Carolina Conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Let the children come Don't dare drive them away And then the kingdom comes Hear the holy foolish things they say The springtime of their life decides The adults they'll become So let the children come let the children come. Children's Bible Journey was brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio and is a production of Life Talk Radio at lifetalk.net.